This is the NC Everything Podcast, a show where we talk about everything that has anything to do with North Carolina. Hey guys, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Curtis, and we got a pretty special episode today. Uh, it's my first episode on an entire county. I'll explain why I'm doing a, a county episode in a minute. Uh, first, I want to welcome back anybody who's coming back and welcome any newcomers to the show. If there are any newcomers who stumbled upon the show and you like what you hear, definitely go check me out at www.thenceverythingpodcast.com. And there you can listen to all my other episodes if you want to and do all sorts of other fun stuff like email me and check out some links to pictures, check out some actual pictures. Um, I mean, I guess they're all actual pictures. Anyway, that's the website. Now, I forgot to mention this in the, the last episode, but before I recorded the last episode, I had gone to the mountains. Now, while I was up in the, the mountains, I, I rode... Uh, I rode a long ways on the Blue Ridge Parkway. I rode the entire North Carolina portion of the, the Blue Ridge Parkway and a real small portion of the Virginia uh, part of it before we had to had to head back home. Anyway, while I was on the trip, I, I took notes and took pictures, a lot of pictures along the way. And I, I thought about, uh, I guess, narrating that trip uh, for a podcast. And, you know, I, I would post the pictures if I'd done that. And it would be like a, a situation where you would go to the website and flip through the pictures in order. I'd put them on there in order. You'd flip through the pictures as I tell the story of my mountain trip. Anyway, I didn't want to bore anybody with, uh, well, in this slide, this is, you know, uh, I don't want to bore anybody. So if you're listening, uh, and I'm not trying to trick you into to emailing if you don't feel like it, but uh, if that's an episode you'd be interested in, uh, and, and having on here, definitely let me know. I, I have the pictures. It would take a little while to set up, but uh, I'm curious about it. But we uh, we covered a lot of ground and saw a lot of really cool stuff. Now, let me tell you how I came to decide to do a podcast on an entire county. Um, this, this week's episode was going to be Brevard, North Carolina. Now, Brevard is in Transylvania County. And uh, so I was, I was looking up stuff about Brevard, Brevard not Prevard. I was looking up stuff about Brevard. Well, while I was looking up stuff about Brevard, I ended up reading some about Transylvania County. And in order to do some research on Transylvania County, I had to get into Henderson and um, Jackson County. And Pisgah comes up. And then, of course, Biltmore, um, um, Vanderbilt comes up. And it just one thing led to another, and it's all intertwined. And so I said, to hell with it. I'll do the entire county. And so this is my very first entire county episode. It, I'm doing the state parks more or less in order, even though one of them pops up in here and it's way down the list. Um, I thought about doing the counties in order. Um, I reckon not. <laughs> but uh, anyway, this is Transylvania County. So getting getting into it, I will say um, there's a lot of places I love in the mountains. One of my, my favorite counties is actually Jackson County, which is just to the to the west of um, Transylvania County, but um, all those counties, all that whole area is absolutely beautiful. But I have to say that Transylvania County probably has the the most interesting history, and it has uh, a lot going on for it. I mean, for example, it's home to one state park, 
one state forest, and one national forest. That's all in one county. And with a name like Transylvania, if, if you're not familiar with the area, that, that uh, sparks some conversation on its own. And so let's, let's talk about it. So the story starts, like most stories in, the, in our state, it starts with Native Americans. Of course, they lived here for probably thousands of years until 1838. And that's when the Indian Removal Act that was passed in 1830 finally kicked in and all the Cherokee had to get out and make way. Now, because um, we have a reservation in North Carolina, um, it's obvious that all the Cherokee didn't get out, but that's a story for another day. I do want to say that uh, there's a lot of places in North Carolina where I say that this is home to the Cherokee, and that was home to the Cherokee. Um, they didn't move around a lot. They were just a, a, an enormous tribe. Um, they weren't just in North Carolina. Um, so you might hear something like um, Indian Federation, something like that. Uh, there are a lot of huge tribes in Cherokee, the, the Cherokee. They were certainly one of them. Um, and, you know, you, you watch stuff like Pocahontas and uh, Jamestown, or what's that movie, The New World, and they show up and it looks deserted. Um, and that may have been the case on the coast in certain places, but I can tell you that this, this country was very, very populated when white man first showed up. It wasn't a, um, a ghost town or... Or the way the movies try to portray it. There were villages um, and even large Native American cities everywhere. Now, I don't mean to digress too much, but I just want to make sure y'all understand that when white man went walking in the woods to build a house, um, there were several houses already there. So who were the, the Cherokee getting out of the way for? Well, that was English, Scotch-Irish, and Welsh settlers. Now, this area that would ultimately become Transylvania County, now, it was first settled in 1787, uh, there was a grant uh, that was made to Colonel Charles McDowell, and he was granted 640 acres. And then there was the, the Hogshead, um, that's Hogs, Hogsd, H-O-G-S-E-D, not Hogshead. So it's Hogshead or Hogsd. Anyway, um, that was the Hogsd and Carson families. Now they came in and they settled up along the French Broad River, and they say that was near Dunn's Rock. Two more families, the Wilsons and the Kings, they settled near uh, present-day Brevard. And west of Brevard, west of Brevard, there's an area called Cathy's Creek, and the first land grant out there was given to William Porter in 1783. Now, somewhere around 1790, there was a small colony put up around the Davison River area. So, as you can see, uh, slowly but surely, settlers were coming up here to this area. Now, John Carson of that Carson family I mentioned a, a second ago, he eventually built a private fort. And the main reason he did this was, uh, do you remember when I said that not all the natives moved out to Oklahoma when they were ordered to, to remove? Well, a lot of them went deeper into the hills to hide out. And uh, this was one of the areas they ended up in. And so a lot of these settlers didn't feel too safe, even though they willingly came up here to live. Um, they didn't feel too safe. So this John Carson, he built a what they call a private fort. I guess not everybody was invited, um, but it did make everybody feel a little bit better having a fort there just in case, you know, shit hit the fan and all. But the shit never really hit the fan, not with the natives anyway. But we'll get to that uh, in just a second. Now, all through the 1800s, the population in this area, um, it stayed pretty low. And the reason is, and I'm going to 
probably mention this again in a few minutes, but the reason that people weren't just flocking to this area was because it was incredibly, incredibly remote and incredibly treacherous. Um, it wasn't an easy task getting up here. And once you got up here, it wasn't an easy task surviving. So it wasn't exactly um, prime real estate, I guess you could say. All right, well, now we're at 1804, and there's been white people in this area for about 20 years, give or take. And the country is really starting to form now. Revolutionary War is over. You know, state lines are being drawn. Um, state governments are being put together. And this leads us to the Walton War. Now, I've actually covered the Walton War, and that's episode uh, 17. And uh, you don't have to stop right now, but I would definitely urge you to go listen to that. I'm, I go into a lot more detail, but I'm going to give you the, the basic strokes of the Walton War right now. The Walton War was essentially fought over a 12-mile strip land called the Orphan Strip. So remember when I was talking about how rugged and, and um, remote this area is? Nobody really wanted it. So it was the Orphan Strip. And... People came there because they wanted to get away from everybody else. You know, social distancing at its finest, I guess you could say, except for the area was full of Native Americans, but, well, we're going to ignore that part. Anyway, in 1802, the orphan strip was given to Georgia. And Georgia and North Carolina, at that point, had a shared border, and they still do today. Well, then, Georgia decided to establish Walton County, Georgia, on, that, um, on the orphan strip, and they had a right to. The land was given to them. So now they had Walton County in the orphan strip. The problem was the boundaries were never really all that clear in the first place. What makes it worse is it wasn't just between North Carolina and Georgia. All in this area, North Carolina, Georgia, and South Carolina all come together. Well, when the federal government gave the orphan strip to Georgia, South Carolina, they were like, yeah, it don't matter to us. We don't care. They're, they're pretty passive about it. They were like, okay, we're Georgians now. So now it's between North Carolina and Georgia. See, the problem was land grants. That's how you got land back then. You got granted some land. So South Carolinians um, or people holding South Carolina land grants, like I said, they, they just accepted Georgia, no problem. Well, the North Carolinians were a different story. So when Walton, the new Walton County officials came up to the Orphan Strip and said, welcome to Walton County, pay your Walton County taxes. Um, we're going to enforce Walton County law. The North Carolina land grant owners, they said, well, we're not in Walton County, uh, Georgia. We're in Buncombe County, North Carolina. And then Walton County officials said, oh, no, you ain't. And they said, oh, yeah, we are. Well, this back and forth kept getting worse and worse until an actual battle broke out at an area called Magaha Branch. And there's another one at Selica Hill. Now, these were the two major battles of the quote-unquote war, and there was only one casualty. Now, on December 14th, 1804, a guy named John Havner he was killed when somebody hit him in the head with a musket. So Buncombe County, North Carolina government said, all right, damn it, we're sending the militia. And so they sent the militia. So North Carolina or Buncombe County militia, they showed up and they immediately, list, they immediately arrested 10 Walton County, Georgia officials, and they took them to Morganton to be tried for the murder of John Havner. Well, all these prisoners escaped, all 10 of them, and um, they never really were caught again. Well, at this point, Georgia was like, you know what? That Walton County is way up there in the hills, and that place sucks. We can't get up there to enforce the law anyway, so um, forget that place. Now, this uh, made a great potential for it to become some lawless, like, western town. But that didn't happen. 
because in 1807, there was a joint commission uh, put together to resolve the problem. Now, there was two leaders that uh, did a survey. One of them was Joseph Caldwell. He was the president of UNC. And Joseph Miggs. He was the president of the University of Georgia. So two colleges, two Josephs, they went out and they concluded after surveying the whole orphan strip that the entire orphan strip rested inside North Carolina territory. Now, a lot of Georgians kind of thumbed their nose at this and refused to accept it until 1811. I don't know what convinced them, but in 1811, it says they did, uh, um, I guess, accept the findings. Now, North Carolina, they pretty much pardoned everybody who was involved from Walton County in the Walton County War. Now, most likely it was too hard and too expensive to track these guys down anyway, so they just, you know, made amends. And Georgia officially admitted defeat in 1818 when they just made a new Walton County somewhere else in Georgia. And in 1838, the Orphan Strip was made, officially made part of Henderson County. Now, the reason I tell you this is because in 1861, pieces of Jackson County and Henderson County, where the Orphan Strip was, well, parts of these counties were cut off to form present-day Transylvania County. But it wasn't that smooth. I don't want to jump to the end, so... Here's the story. So you got Henderson County, which like I said, that's just east of Transylvania County or what would become Transylvania County. So Henderson County was made from parts of Buncombe County. And then Transylvania County was made from parts of Henderson County. Um, well, Henderson County was made in 1838. Well, eventually, like every county, uh, Henderson County needed a county seat, which, you know, that's, that's the seat of government. Now, the settlers in the western area, they wanted uh, the county seat to be somewhere near the French Broad River site. I think that was most convenient for them, you know how it is. Well, they took an election, and the election put the county seat at Mud Creek. Well, that's, this didn't make them very happy. There was an uproar. Now, you may think this isn't a big deal. A county seat's a county seat, but remember, this place, it didn't have paved roads like it does now. You know, there was no interstate. Um, it was If you needed to talk to your county government, um, you had a hell of a ride ahead of you to get there. And so, naturally, these people, they said, well, fine, we need a, a new county, a county uh, that's going to be just for us, and then the county seat can be where we want it. So, let's make a new county. So, a group of guys, they met at James Neal's Hattery Shop, and this was on the old Boylston, Boylston Road, and it's the site of the Lowe's store in Pisgah Forest, if you're wondering where it is today. And at this store, that's where the, the ball really got rolling. Now, on February 15th, 1861, Representative, Representative Joseph P. Jordan, he introduced a bill to the House of Commons to establish a new county from parts of Henderson and Jackson County. Now, this guy, Jordan, he was born in the real Transylvania. You know, the, the one with the vampires the, in Europe. The actual Transylvania, he was born on a farm near Blantyre. And one thing about the, the real Transylvania is um, the region um, looks a whole lot like western North Carolina in, in some parts. And so that's most likely where he got the name for the county. So Transylvania County is now born, and the first county meeting was held on May 20th, 1861. Now, this is also the same day that North Carolina succeeded from the Union and joined the Confederacy, um, just so happens. But that um, first county meeting was held at a one-room country store. Now, this store is called the Valley Store, and it was at a place they called Oak Grove. 
Now, the meeting they had there was, okay, where do you want to make the county seat? Now, they, they wanted it somewhere close to the French Broad River originally. So they talked about it, and they, they pushed back and forth details of you know the county and, and how it was growing. Well, the population um, was growing by this time, and they were really leaning toward building a town in an area called Rock Springs. And eight days later, they chose the site for the county seat. It would eventually be called Brevard. Now, they didn't just throw a thumbtack on a map. There was actually uh, 50 acres of land donated to the calls, and the, the donators were B.C. Lankford, L.S. Gash, and Alexander England Jr. So, since they were donating property, okay, well, let's put the town here. And it's hard to wrap your mind around you could walk out in the woods and say, okay, let's start a town. You know, that doesn't happen so much anymore. We start housing developments. We don't start towns. But that's how it was back then. So Brevard was established in 1861, but it wasn't incorporated until 1889, and you'll find out why. Now, they picked the name Brevard in order to, or as a way to, to honor a guy named Ephraim Brevard. And um, that's E-P-H-R-I-A-M. It might be Ephraim, um, Ephraim, um, maybe closer like Abraham, but I'm going to say Ephraim. Now, officially, that was Dr. Ephraim Brevard. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about, about Mr. Brevard here, or Dr. Brevard. He didn't go to medical school to be called Mr. Anyway, I want to tell you a little bit more about him. And the first thing I want to tell you um, is kind of a cool fact about North Carolina. Or, that's not a fact, it's a legend, but uh, let's call it a fact here. Um, everybody knows the Declaration of Independence. It was written by Thomas Jefferson, blah, blah, blah. What a lot of people don't know is that wasn't the first draft. It wasn't the second or third. There was several um, attempts at declaring independence. And allegedly, one of the very first attempts at a declaration of independence was written by Dr. Ephraim Brevard. And supposedly, it was signed in Charlotte, North Carolina, by a, a committee of citizens from Mecklenburg County. Well, once Cornwallis, General Cornwallis, and his guys hit the South, um, Brevard, he finally joined the cause. So he joins the fight in the revolution. He was taken prisoner at the surrender of Charleston on May 12th, 1780. And while he was in prison, he, uh, got really sick with dysentery and they say he never really recovered from dysentery and he died in 1781. Oh, by the way, he, he was born in 1744. Sorry, I'm, I'm tacked it on at the end, but Born in 1744, fought in the revolution, died 1781. So was that 30-some years old? Maybe my math's wrong on that. Hold on. He was 37 years old. Anyway, back to the town of Brevard. They laid out Main Street on the top of the ridge, um, and Broad Street crossed it. So just like a cross. And this would be the center of town. Now, one corner of this, this cross was assigned to the courthouse. Now, remember, this was 1861. Now, after that, 79 lots that were on the front of the streets, um, they were surveyed and, and measured out. Now, they did reserve space for public buildings, and uh, they reserved space for three churches, and the rest of these lots were sold off at auction. Now, like just about everything in North Carolina's early history, the Civil War started, and it shook things up. It rocked the boat. It made waves. And that's why the town of Brevard uh, wasn't incorporated until 1889. Just everything got put on hold. Now, speaking of putting everything on hold, you remember that courthouse they started building in 1861? Well, it didn't actually get finished until 1884. 
And that courthouse is still out there today, still standing. Now, I want to tell you about Pisgah Forest, but to do that, I need to tell you about George Washington Vanderbilt. Now, that name may sound familiar to some of you if you haven't followed the show. Vanderbilt built Biltmore. I noticed a lot of built, but yes, we're going to talk about the Biltmore State for, for a few minutes. I actually covered the Biltmore State in episode 14, so... uh Again, you don't have to stop it, but um, if you're curious, you can go back and listen to that. But just like the Walton War, I'm going to kind of give you the broad strokes here. But George Washington Vanderbilt, well, he was from Staten Island, New York, where he once visited visited the Asheville area, and like many people, he fell in love. So in love that he bought 125,000 acres in the area, and this included Pisgah Mountain. Well, he decided to build a gargantuan house here. Now, this house, after it was done would be 175,000 square feet. So it takes up four acres of floor space. It has 250 rooms in the house, and that includes 35 bedrooms, 45 bathrooms, 65 fireplaces. Now on the, the land, there's 75 acres of gardens. Now part of what uh, George Vanderbilt bought was desolate uh, timber cut. Now, timber was a big thing at that time up in the mountains. There was a lot of money to be made in trees. And so um, when he bought the land, they had come through and cut the timber. But he was a bit of a naturalist, and that may be why he bought it. So he hired some experts that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And they pretty much replanted and rejuvenated um, not only the forest, but all the land around the forest. And that forest that he rejuvenated would be the beginning of what would become Pisgah National Forest. Now, I'm going to talk about Pisgah specifically here in a minute, but I do want to say Pisgah National Forest isn't just in Transylvania County. It spans multiple counties, but 83,000 acres of it is in Transylvania County. And because of uh, Biltmore, or Biltmore, Vanderbilt's attempts at rejuvenating the forest and, and really building this place up, that's why they say Biltmore is the birthplace of American forestry. Now, a German guy named Carl Schneck he started the Biltmore Forestry School on the Biltmore Estate in 1898. Now there, he studied and taught forestry. And that's why this area has the moniker, the Cradle of Forestry. Because he um, had that forestry school for a long time, and he taught a lot of foresters. Now, after Vanderbilt died, the family sold the forest to the state, you know, and that became Pisgah. And they opened the home up for tours, and this was pretty much just a way to keep the lights on because it was really expensive to to run this humongous house and you know the moneymaker George Vanderbilt had now died now they sold the the forest you know to the state and they started selling other little lots around now he had 125,000 acres to begin with but today the Biltmore estate sits on about 8,000 acres now just to clear things up and wrap things up on on this part of it the Biltmore Estate is not in Transylvania County, but the Pisgah National Forest is. And uh, so that's why I included that little bit about Biltmore in this episode. So sticking with the timeline, now we're at 1895 and the railroad has finally come to town. Now this was the Henderson and Brevard Railroad. Later it was changed to the Transylvania Railroad Company. Now the reason uh, the railroad coming is so important is because it brought a ton of tourism. And remember, and I don't mean to keep kicking a dead horse, but remember how it was kind of hard to get people up in this area? Well, the railroad fixed that. 
So the, the railroad did back then what the interstate did to us in the seventies and eighties, you know, it, it made it really easy to go see these places you've only heard about. Well, all this tourism heading up that way led to the creation of resort towns like Lake Toxaway, which is what I'm going to tell you about now. So here's Lake Toxaway's origin story. A group of Pittsburgh entrepreneurs, they, they built the Toxaway company in 1895 now, don't confuse the Toxaway Company with the Lake Toxaway Company. The Lake Toxaway Company comes later. Right now, we're talking about the Toxaway Company. Now, like I said, they built it in 1895, and it was their intention to, to buy and develop all this land in the area and mine it for minerals. Well, it wasn't long after they created it, they uh, maybe as a side gig, they started building some summer homes and a summer resort in the area. They built Lake Fairfield and the Fairfield Inn in 1896. Lake Sapphire and the Sapphire Inn was built in 1897. And the 200-room Franklin Hotel was built in 1900. Now, right in this area was the Toxaway River. And it was the Toxaway Company's intention to dam up the river. And then they were going to build the biggest man-made lake in the Appalachian Mountains. Now, some of you may go, well, that's impossible. But the Toxaway Company company had already finished about 80 acres of Toxaway Lake, and they did this for their Fairfield Inn. But they wanted to make the lake um, a whole lot bigger. And so they started this lake expansion project on June 1st, 1902, and water was coming over the spillway two years later in 1903. Now this dam was uh, an earthen dam. is built out of dirt. It was 60 feet tall and 500 feet wide. And this earthen dam is what held back the three-mile-long Lake Toxaway. Now, on the banks of this new lake is where they started building the Toxaway Inn. And this Toxaway Inn uh, was going to be one of the nicest places you ever you ever heard of. They had uh, central heat, indoor plumbing, long-distance telephones, elevators, a billboard parlor, a bowling alley, a gazebo. They even had outdoor concerts out there. Now, in 1912... The Toxway Company put in a nine-hole golf course near present-day Lake Cardinal. So you can see that the Toxway Company, they ain't slowing down for nothing. Now, they said people like Henry Ford, Harvey Firestone, Thomas Edison, and even the Vanderbilts came down to Lake Toxway to stay. So you, you can see it must have been a, a really nice place. Well, eventually, the Toxway Company began to struggle. And in 1912, the, the Toxway Company's biggest shareholder, a man named Edward, Edward H. Jennings, he bought the company outright. But there was a, a problem. Remember that earthen dam I told you it was made out of dirt? Well, in 1916, it busted. Now, it didn't just bust like a bubble. In uh, July of 1916, the area was hit by two hurricanes. So they already, by the time two hurricanes came through, everything was already soaked and saturated. So it was really bad news when a third hurricane, hurricane come up from the Gulf. And they said over 24 hours, it dropped uh, 20 inches of rain. Well, at 7.10 p.m. on August 13th, the dam busted. And they said 5.3 billion gallons of water went downstream into South Carolina. And they said... Uh, they said you could see a 30-foot tall wave coming down the river. Now, typically, when a, a lake is flooding, you, you draw down the water. You, um, you let some water out in anticipation for a lot of rain. I remember several years ago, I went to go see uh, Lake Fontana, and uh, it was way down, and I couldn't understand why. And I don't remember if I looked it up on the internet or asked somebody, but the, the lake was way down. 
and it was um probably I guess it would have been um in the winter or colder because what it was they were anticipating the the snow melt from um, up on the higher elevations and so they went ahead and let the lake down you know and anticipating that flood water that's typically what you do but that didn't happen at Lake Toxaway um in preparation for these three or any any of these hurricanes and they they think that's why the dam busted now as bad as this sounds um there was only one casualty and that was from a blind mule and i'm not making that up if you chuckled i mean i kind of chuckled too i feel bad about it but uh he didn't see it coming but there there was no human casualties um several houses were destroyed by this but the the worst part came after the flood because everybody was moving into the lake toxaway area for the resort i mean it's a lake Toxaway, right? Well, when the dam busted, there was no more lake. It dried up. And so even though the Toxaway Inn uh, survived all this flooding and, and all this damage, everybody started moving out of the area. And so eventually the Toxaway Inn um, was abandoned. And people went in there and they, they stole souvenirs. They stole whatever they could find. And what they couldn't steal was auctioned off eventually. So the tourists are gone away from, from Lake Toxaway. Lake Toxaway is gone from Lake Toxaway. And it stayed this way, you know, a dried up lake and empty homes. It stayed this way until the 60s. And that's when a guy named um, Reg Heinrich, oh, good grief, um, Reg, R-E-G, and the Heinrich, it's H-E-I-N-I-T-S-C. No, I misspelled that. H-E-I-N-I-T-S-H. So, Heintich, Reg Heintich Sr., he was from Columbia, South Carolina. Now, he put together a group of investors, and they made the Lake Toxaway Company. Remember I mentioned that earlier? Now you're, now you're dealing with the Lake Toxaway Company. And their whole idea was to fix the lake, fill it up, restore the area to its former glory. Well, in 1960, they bought 9,000 acres of property all around the, the empty lake bed, and, and it says they bought that for $50 per acre, which sounds pretty damn cool. Anyway... They cleared the area where the lake once was, they rebuilt the dam, and they restored the water levels in the lake back to its original form. Well, then they started selling property around the lake, and this property, if you bought it, came with exclusive access, or exclusive private access, to Lake Toxaway. And that Lake Toxaway community is still there today, and it's still thriving, and it's still very, very beautiful. Now we're at 1916, which that's when the, the Lake Toxaway flood happened. And I covered that, so let's move to the next thing. Also in 1960, this is when the Pisgah National Forest was actually uh, formed. So you remember when I said it's in other counties? The Pisgah National Forest is actually in 12 counties. And it was the first national forest in the eastern United States. So the way it goes, on February 1911, uh, Congress passes the Weeks Act. And this authorizes the government to buy forested or cut over or, or just screwed up land to be to be restored and protected. Then the protection would come from the, the Forest Service. And on August 29th, 1912, uh, a place called Curtis Creek near Old Fort became the first land purchased under the Weeks Act. Well, now we're at May 21st, 1914. Vanderbilt, um, Edith Vanderbilt, I'm sorry, Edith Vanderbilt, George's wife of, of the Biltmore State, she finishes her negotiations to sell Pisgah Forest to the government. They're going to buy it for $5 per acre. Now, like I said, more land was bought and added to the Pisgah National Forest. But this, uh, um, I guess, Edith, Edith Vanderbilt's property now, what she sold was the beginning of it. 
1961, the Cradle of Forestry was established on 6,500 acres in Pisgah. Now, the Cradle of Forestry is, is an odd name, but if you remember when I was talking about Biltmore, um, the Cradle of Forestry, that, that moniker came from the, the forestry school that was there. And so how that came to pass, I told you Vanderbilt, he bought the land, he built the Biltmore estate, he hired an architect to build the house, and he hired a landscaper to design the grounds. But then there was the, the forest. So there was only two foresters in the country at the time, and he hired one of them, a Pennsylvanian named Gifford Penchant. Now, this woods, like I said, was all screwed up, but Gifford got it. Gifford. Yeah, it is Gifford. I feel like it ought to be Gilford. Gifford got out there. I just said Gilford. God darn it. Gifford got out there, and he, he fixed the woods. I, I stayed on that sentence way too long. But he got out there, and he, he planted, um, I can't remember what it is now. I've, I covered it in my Biltmore episode, but he planted thousands and thousands of trees out here in this messed up forest. And, I mean, he pretty much built a forest. Now, it took him about three years to, uh, to get this place planted. I'm sure it took a lot longer for it to really start looking good. Now, I'm sure there's a, a whole lot more to do. The reason I said it took him three years is because that's all he had. After three years, he left Biltmore, and he served as the chief of the U.S. Forest Service. Eventually, he was elected governor of Pennsylvania, and he stayed that way for two terms. But before he left the, the North Carolina area, he recommends his friend Carl A. Schneck, that German guy I was telling you about. Now, Schneck, he'd done a whole lot of work, not just forestry. He... Uh, he talked about putting permanent roads in, and this was so management could get around the forest, but also in case of a wildfire, you know, emergency vehicles could get around there to, to help save the forest. And so that he had roads put in, and um, he did a whole lot of stuff to try to protect the watershed, and he built a tree nursery. So you can see he he uh, pretty much hit the ground running. Well, eventually somebody came up to him, and, and they wanted to talk to him about maybe teaching forestry to people because... Remember, there was only two foresters in the country when uh, Vanderbilt was looking for one. So he would eventually start this forestry school, and it would be the first forestry school in the U.S. Now, he opened this, this forestry school in 1898. And if you ever, if you ever go to the, the Cradle of Forestry in America's Forest Discovery Center, that's a mouthful. If you ever go to the Cradle of Forestry in America's Forest Discovery Center, well, the actual site where he opened his uh, forestry school in 1898 is about 100 yards from that building. Now, it says that they didn't just teach, you know, just forestry. Um, he taught silviculture, surveying, forest protection, logging, tree and plant identification, forest mensuration. I'm not sure what that is. I need to look that up and I forgot to. Forest policy and forest management. Now, the, the kids in this class or the people in this forestry class, they were there for six days a week. They got Sunday off, and they were allowed two weeks for Christmas. Now, unfortunately, the, the forestry school, the Biltmore Forest School, it closed in 1913. Now, I hate that because that's a, a, a good thing that gives back. But um, before it closed, he sent out a whole lot of foresters, and he started pretty much a forestry movement. I mean, forestry in the United States is what it is today because of, of the Biltmore Forest School. Now I want to tell you about Gorgeous State Park. So if you haven't heard, in 1916, the Lake Toxway Dam busted and everything flooded. Well, after the flood, like I said, everybody moved away from the dried up lake because it, it just wasn't cool anymore. You know, who wants to live next to a dried up lake? Well, there's a sewing machine company and I'm familiar with it. I don't know if you are, but it's called Singer. 
And if you ever see some of those old sewing machines built into the table, like at Grandma's house, it's probably a Singer. Well, the Singer Sewing Machine Company started buying up uh, large tracts of land in an area they call the Gorges. Well, they didn't do a whole lot with it. And then in the 40s and the 50s, Singer sold all the land they bought to Duke Energy Corporation. You've probably heard of them. Well, Duke, they were uh, the reason they wanted the land was because of the mountains and the rainfall. They were hoping they could build uh, hydropower projects up in the area and, and capitalize on the climate and the, the region. Well, Duke started closing roads and restricting access. And so people, local people in the area, they started getting pretty pissed. And so they started screaming and hollering, and this drew a little too much attention. So in the late 70s, a bunch of conservation studies um, started taking place in the area. And in 1982, 275 acres of land that is that eventually ended up in Gorgeous State Park was placed under the North Carolina Registry of Natural Heritage Areas. And that was mainly because of the rare species living in this area. Well, in the late 90s, I guess Duke realized they had lost. They determined that they really couldn't do much with the area, and so they didn't really need all this land for hydropower. Well, I guess, well, I have to guess. This is my own words here. I don't know if they were trying to, to spite North Carolina, but they offered the land they, offered the land they, they owned to natural resource companies in North and South Carolina. But the North Carolina Division of Parks and Recreation... They jumped right on it and they bought the land and they built one of probably one of the most interesting state parks on my list of state parks. And I don't mean any offense to any other state parks. I love them all. But this one here is, uh, it's pretty damn cool. I say pretty damn cool too much. Now, if you're rolling your eyes and thinking, oh man, when's he going to be done? Um, I told you it was interesting County. You can listen to this in two parts, but I'm going to record it in one. Now we're going to talk about DuPont State Recreational Forest. Now, this is a 10,300-acre state recreational forest. They bought it, or the state got it, in three major phases from 95 to 2000. So, uh, 7,600 acres was bought by North Carolina in 1996 and, uh, 1996 and 1997. Now, this was after the DuPont Company sold its uh, industrial operation and all the land around its, its industrial operation. 2,700 acres that were around the facility was stole, was sold to Sterling Diagnostic Imaging in 96. Uh, the Conservation Fund, I've talked about them before, I'm sure, but the Conservation Fund, and they were a nonprofit organization, well, they negotiated an agreement between uh, DuPont and North Carolina, and they facilitated a public purchase. And so with this, DuPont transfers all their property over to the Conservation Fund, and eventually, North Carolina buys this land from the Conservation Fund for $2.2 million, or about $2.2 million. Now, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. In 2000, about 500 acres was added to the forest. Now, also in, in the year 2000, a 2,200-acre tract in the middle of the original state forest, um, it, was, it was acquired. I don't know if that means bald or how they got in, you know, that, that word acquired is tricky, but... This area they bought included um, High Falls, Triple Falls, and Bridal Veil Falls. And I'm going to talk about some waterfalls in a few minutes. But for now, that's DuPont State Forest. Now let's talk about Sapphire. And yes, I'm, it's kind of the gym, but I'm also talking about the town. 
Now, the town or the area of Sapphire, it was originally built as a gold and gem mine town. And this is along the Highlands Cashers Plateau. So, early 1800s, the Sapphire Valley region was supposedly the leading gold producing area uh, in, in the country until the California Gold Rush of 1849. Well, in the late 1800s, a guy named E.H. Jennings... Do you remember him? He was the Toxaway Company guy um, that that uh, built the resorts. Well, he wanted to build a railroad in this area, and so he could get the. He wanted to build a sawmill and a railroad to get this timber out because earlier in this episode I told you about the the money to be made on timber. Well, he wanted to cash in on that. However, because of the natural beauty of the area, um, he decided, like I mentioned before, to build a resort area. Now, this is going to be a little way south of Toxaway, where he built the the inns and stuff originally. But I did mention that he built um, the Fairfield Inn on Lake Fairfield. And that's, I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, this inn, it was built like a Swiss Alpine Lodge. And the reason he built it that way or had it built that way is because um, this area kind of reminded him of Switzerland. And so he intentionally wanted to build the hotel to kind of look like that. Now, it was built in 1896. And in 1982, it was added to the National Registry of Historic Places. Unfortunately, this Swiss-looking uh, inn burned up in a fire in 1986. And I know I didn't say a whole lot about Sapphire, but um, I didn't find a whole lot in the research. It's um, it's a pricey place to live, but and I know I say this all the time, but it is absolutely beautiful. I don't even remember what road we take to go through there when we're riding. But you can see Sapphire National Golf Course, and and it's located on a, a private uh, resort club. And uh, it's one of the only, I guess, what they call um, resort golf courses that is actually open to the public. I've been wanting to go up there and play for a long time. Some of you know how much I, I enjoy playing golf when I get a chance. You can see down uh, a few of the fairways as you're riding down through Sapphire, and it, it does. It, it, it just looks beautiful you can't even imagine now i do want to say that uh some of this stuff i haven't done an exclusive episode on and that includes sapphire i will probably end up doing a, a exclusive episode on sapphire probably gorgeous um gorgeous state park and i might go a deeper dive into dupont um but like i said when i wanted to do this episode a lot of this was was intertwined and there's still so much more I could say about DuPont. I mean, um, I'm sorry about Transylvania County, like the waterfalls. There's 250 waterfalls in Transylvania County. Now I've been to a few of them. One of the most famous ones is looking glass falls. It's about 60 foot tall. It's right on the side of the road. And, um, and by the way, I don't need to say this, but if you go to www.dnceverythingpodcast.com, click episodes, if you click this episode, there'll be links to all this stuff I talk about in here. But I've been to Looking Glass Falls. I've been to um, High Falls, Triple Falls, and Hooker Falls. Now, those three uh, waterfalls are in the DuPont State Forest. Hooker Falls um, was actually featured in The Last of the Mohicans. Now, no, it's not the famous waterfall scene that they go behind and he says, I will find you, you know. No, Hooker Falls is um when they're heading to that big waterfall they go behind, they go down this smaller waterfall in the canoes. You know, you can see on their faces that they're kind of worried they won't make it, but it's about a 10-foot waterfall. That's Hooker Falls. Now, Triple Falls that I just mentioned, you know, also in DuPont, it was featured in Hunger Games, the, the first one. 
Now, when Peter is, um, uh, I guess, got his uh, gray camouflage on and Katniss is hurt, that waterfall that Peter is hiding out around, that's Triple Falls. Now, I've also been to Rainbow Falls, Sliding Rock, Schoolhouse Falls, and Graveyard Fields. Now, Graveyard Fields is actually up on the Blue Ridge Parkway. The Blue Ridge Parkway, it goes along the north border of Transylvania County. And um, to be honest with you, I didn't know that Graveyard Fields, um, that area was considered Transylvania County. Now, Graveyard Fields, it's you go along the Blue Ridge Parkway and it's all wooded and it's beautiful. And all of a sudden, it just opens up and it, it looks halfway desolate. And I think I read somewhere that it was a, a wildfire in the area that burned the area out. And it, uh, vegetation didn't really grow back. There's some, but not a whole lot of vegetation is there. So you see all these little, or little, you see these giant rocks. It's a real rocky area, like the rest of the mountains, but usually those rocks aren't exposed. So all these rocks are laying around, and it looks like a field of headstones. Well, if you follow a trail down there, and there's the Graveyard Fields Waterfalls. I don't think that's the name of them. I thought I had that in my notes. Anyway, very cool. Last thing I want to say, and we're almost done, I promise, but the last thing, the French Broad River. Most people have heard of the French Broad River. I think I said river funny the first time. Um, it's a, a strange river, but me and my wife have a joke. We go through the mountains, and it seems like we're constantly crossing over the French Broad River. I used to have the joke that, uh, that the French Broad was everywhere you went in the mountains. But the French Broad, I keep saying river weird, the French Broad starts in Transylvania County and, uh, it starts in Rosman, which is Transylvania County. Now it's one of the few rivers that actually flow North instead of South. And it's about 219 miles long. And then it dumps into the Holston river in Tennessee. And the last thing I want to tell you is actually one of the first things I researched. Remember when I said I was going to do an episode on Brevard? Well, the one thing I know about Brevard. So it's the first thing I looked up was white squirrels. And yes, Brevard has white squirrels. So the legend is that there was this traveling carnival. Well, while it was traveling around, one of the, the guys found a couple white squirrels. And so he put them in his carnival show. Well, eventually these uh, white squirrels, they were passed around and changed hands. And they ended up in the hands of a lady in Brevard. Well, one of these squirrels eventually gets out and the other one just gets released. Well, one thing led to another and another and many others, and now Brevard is known for its white squirrels. Now, I don't know if this legend is true or not, but that's what they say. Now, if you don't know, um, albino um, will make animals white. And to be albino, it just means the absence of melanin. Um, but these squirrels, they're, they're not albino. They've done studies on them, and they're not albino at all. Albino squirrels do exist, but they're really, really rare. It just, it turns out it's a mutation. Now, if I ain't mistaken, um, um, to be albino is a mutation, but this mutation is, is different. So these squirrels, they're your typical run of the mill gray squirrels. They just have that mutation in their genes that make their coats white, but it's not, uh, the, the absence of melanin. So when something is albino, typically it has like reddish eyes, but these white squirrels still have dark eyes and they say some of them even have even have gray streaks in their white fur. Now they say that, uh, these white squirrels that aren't albinos do appear in other parts of the world, um, or other parts of the country like New York, South Carolina, New Jersey, and Tennessee. But Brevard is, uh, is one of the only places that protects these squirrels. They've actually had a uh, sanctuary protection since 1986. 
So that pretty much means you're not allowed to take them, and you're not allowed to kill them, and you're not allowed to harass them in any way. And that is Transylvania County. Maybe White Squirrels was a weird place to finish on, but I, I like it. Um, actually, in my notes, I put the White Squirrels thing at the very bottom um, because I was going to get back to it later, and I forgot. So that's how I ended with White Squirrels, but I still like it. Now, if you liked that episode and you're curious about the rest of them, definitely go to www.thenceverythingpodcast.com. And there's a player on the home screen that'll play my latest episodes, or you can scroll down and see the rest. But if you click episodes there, you'll see each episode with links to any pictures that pertain to that episode and links to my sources I use to put the episode together. Now, we've already been going on for 48 and a half minutes, so I'm just going to wrap it up by saying I'll talk to you next time. The music in this episode comes from archesaudio.com and freepd.com. <laughs>